We are tonight talking with two colleagues from the University of Chicago who are much interested in the question of the nature of artistic genius, though in their more recent forays they've also uh, begun, I think, to examine the nature of uh, scholarly genius, and we'll talk about that later in the program. Those guests are David Gallinson, who is professor of economics at the University of Chicago. What's an economist doing studying genius? You will shortly discover that's an econo econometric way to go at this question. And our other guest is Joshua Cotin, who is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Chicago in the broad realm of English language and literature. He is, as well, the editor of the literary journal at the University of Chicago, The Chicago Review. Gentlemen, you remember in Hamlet, uh, Polonius talking to evil uncle Claudius, the king of Denmark, about Hamlet's madness. Polonius says, to define madness, madness is. It would be mad to try to define madness. To define genius, is that madness also? Or can one really define genius? Genius is an elusive term. I, I'd prefer to talk about creativity. But you've got genius on the title of your book. Um, Old it, masters and young geniuses. It's used in part ironically. Ah, explain why. Uh, it's, it's, the idea is to get in the contrast here between these very two different types of innovator. Um, as, you, as you said in the introduction, um, Josh and I have studied now a number of different arts. And in every one of the arts that I've studied, we find that there are these two very different types of innovator. And the, 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 the cliched versions of their, their titles are mm -hmm. old masters and young geniuses. So some uh, contributors uh, burn brightly and with a gem-like flame, but it often burns out early, does it? Absolutely. These are the people that I call conceptual. These, these are people who want to express ideas or emotions, and they are typically iconoclastic. They come to a new discipline, they learn the rules, and they mm -hmm. break one or more of the rules, and they make these very sudden leaps. They are the people that traditionally we've considered geniuses. And at the other end of the uh, continuum are what people you call old masters. What are they? Old masters are people that are They're really older, obviously, but what else are they? And they learn by trial and error, and they make their great work very late in life, um, learning as they go along. They're uh, craftsmen. They're craftsmen. They tend to write about the world, about their experiences and perceptions. So then do they get better in the actual quality of their work as they get older? Yes, they do. Whereas the blazing young guys, even if they live longer and continue working, aren't as good 15 years later as they were at the peak. That's exactly right. Let's look at that with regard to American poetry. You, we're going to play a number of clips, and you have selected for us tonight what young genius, what old master? We thought we'd listen to Prufrock, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, and maybe some Frost poems to demonstrate um, the old master. Uh, T.S. Eliot uh, is famous for uh, much work, but I suppose he really startled the world and stunned them with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which was indeed published here in Chicago in the magazine Poetry. I believe that was... That's the exactly first, right. first publication, what year? 1913 19... or 15, thereabouts. Yeah, 14 or 15, I yeah. think. Uh, and he's 23 years old at the time. Uh, this is an explosive poem. Does it, in fact, meet the criterion that you suggested earlier, David? Does it break the rules? It's a radical conceptual innovation. It's How so? It's completely different from, from all of the poetry. What that does comes he do? Before it. Um, he breaks a whole series of conventions. I think, I mean, Josh is the expert on the, on the details of this, but, it, but basically he gets away from a single, from a linear narrative. 
Um, he uses multiple voices, and at this point, Josh can elaborate on the on the other devices. Yeah, and just the just the language in it is very self-reflexive. It's a collage of references to older poems, to Hamlet, which you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. to Marvell, to his quite mistress. Um, he he also has radical similes, which harken back to metaphysical poets, um, like like a patient etherized upon a table, the describing very, the night. The very opening lines. Exactly. Let us go then, you and I, when the night is stretched out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Right. It's just a radical new way of looking at the world. Yeah. Let's hear a portion of it. And this is as read, though much, much later in his life, by T.S. Eliot. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. We could go on. It's a long poem, and it's a wonderful poem. If anyone is hearing it for the first time, they don't quite know what it's about. Exactly. Though they're caught probably by its cadence, by its rhythm, by something hypnotic about the imagery and about the actual meter. Yeah, exactly. I think that's true. And also, Eliot creates a whole world in this poem that bears little, very little resemblance to a world that a, a, an everyday person may experience um, in London or going outside. What is the poem really about, by the way? The poem is about an old man, um, J. Alfred Prufrock, yeah. and his indecision. That is kind of a strange, ironic poem about this very young um, poet writing about an old man and his indecision, a very decisive young poet, and he's kind of creating this old... The measure of the old man's indecision is the recurring line later on. Exactly. Shall I walk upon the beach? Shall I eat a peach? Exactly. And so on. And that there will be time yeah. for all these uh, indecisions. It's a fabulous poem, and it repays many readings, but it's done by a... A kid of 23. Sitting in a library, it's, it's, this is not a poem that's written out of personal experience or observation of the world. This is a poem that's written out of reading earlier poetry. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who has, has been in libraries, but he hasn't had any other life. Interestingly, later on, T.S. Eliot gets off a line, to, about, but um, he says, ordinary poets borrow, great poets steal. <laughs> is that a reference to his own use of... Oh, definitely. The prior literature. I think that's true. And Eliot really created something brand new out of his kind of yeah. collage technique, even in his later great poems like The Wasteland, which is, does it even more. Now, the contrast we want to draw between the young Eliot, though he went on as a writer all of that rather long life, uh, is to Robert Frost. Let's talk about him. Uh, Robert Frost is, is, is almost 180 degrees uh, from Eliot. Um, Frost is somebody who starts very slowly. He's, he's not considered particularly talented, 
but he is dedicated to capturing the look and the sound of New England. And he spends years and years living in New England, living in rural New England, uh, talking to people, listening to people, and trying to make art out of everyday speech, vernacular speech. And he's also working in metric forms which are rather classical and well-established. He's holding to the discipline Definitely. of poetry. Definitely. So the two poems I think we have, one's, um, one's called Mowing from his first book from 1913 when he was already 38. And the second one is Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening when he was 48. The first poem's a sonnet, and the second one is 16 lines in rhyming quatrains. I think we'll uh, just go to Stopping by Woods, time being short, commercials beckoning, and we do want to set the contrast uh, between these two poets and these two ways of approaching the challenge of poetry. Here then, Robert Frost again, reading his own poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Miles to go before I sleep. Wow, what an incredible poem. But it's also, I guess, the difference between this and the Eliot is this is language that people use every yeah. day as opposed to... But is all the meaning there or are there other layers of meaning that... Oh, there are very deep layers of meaning in this poem, I think. What are... But I, I think they're not... What does it mean beyond the manifest content? I'm not sure if it means something the way that Eliot means something. It means something... It kind of refers to the complexity of life. Mm -hmm. The mysteries of the poem or the mysteries of, of this wood. This wood that's lovely because it's dark and deep. And... It's about, this is a poem about perception, about trying to perceive everything in the world, total awareness of one's situation. And I think, whereas the mysteries in Proof Rock are in the poem, about what Eliot means. In the Frost poem, these are about the mysteries of the world. Now, staying with poetry for a while, let us, let us now praise famous poets, or at least name them. Okay. Uh, who's in the one category, apart from these two men, and who's in the other category? Okay, um, uh, the living poets? And, and, and dead, no. Oh, living poets. Both ways. Um, the burning boys of English poetry, Keats and Shelley, would have to be conceptual. blazing young conceptualists, Definitely. aren't they? And then the great late poets of like Yeats or Stevens. Or even in in the time of uh, the late poets, Wordsworth goes um, on and on writing poetry. He goes on and on and on, but I think his most significant work is, is his young stuff. Yeah, Lyrical Ballads, his, uh -huh. his first great book, and yeah. maybe the prelude. Um, but there's a lot of argument of which version of the prelude is better. They're well, who are the old master poets? Well, in the cohorts that we've been talking about, William Carlos Williams is a great uh -huh. experimental poet. Uh, Wallace Stevens, as, as Josh said, is a great experimental poet, as is Robert Lowell. Um, again, you know, of American 20th century poets, E.E. E. Cummings is an important conceptual poet, um, as is Eliot's friend Ezra Pound. And... Uh, in, you know, a younger cohort, Sylvia Plath, is a great but conceptual Pound poet. But Pound hangs around forever and utterly disgraces himself, turning into a fascist, broadcasting during World War II uh, from Rome and against uh, uh, America. 
and then he's thrown into the booby hatch afterwards. Conceptual artists are not known for their judgment. These are the theorists. These uh -huh. are the people who don't necessarily live in the real world. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that all, that all uh, conceptual artists become that eccentric in old age, but uh, there's no question judgment is not a characteristic that's associated with a conceptual, whereas judgment is associated with the experimental. Now, there's one matter that may be confusing some of our listeners. So far, this could be a conversation between me and two professors of English. But in fact, uh, Joshua is a, a nascent professor of English. He's uh, finishing his PhD and will be one. But David Gallinson is an economist. What's a nice young economist like you doing in this conversation? That's a very long story. Um, and it, it began with me um, estimating age price profiles for 20th century painters. Um, it's age I, price profiles. That means uh, how well their stuff sells at what price levels. Yeah, they, to pay, correlates to the ages at which the paintings were done. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, in, in the very first study I did almost 10 years ago, I discovered that uh, many great American painters, the abstract expressionists, almost all did their their most valuable work late in their lives. Whereas in contrast, the next generation, the great uh, artists of the late 50s and 60s, Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, uh, Andy Warhol, the other pop artists, the minimalists, they almost all did their greatest work very early in their lives. And, you know, this was a good economic puzzle to me. Why would you get, you know, upward, upward sloping age price profiles for th this very important cohort of painters? And then for the very next one, you'd get this peculiar result that these very important artists were doing their best work in their 20s. And the data you can use to demonstrate those two patterns uh, are essentially the prices paid for paintings. Auction data, yeah. What, what data can you use for poets? Uh, well, you know, that was where it, it was less obvious. I mean, I resisted studying other arts. I was primarily interested in painting. And in, in, for paintings, you have not only auction data, but you have all these wonderful textbooks that have all these illustrations mm -hmm. in them. And so, you know, I could go and confirm the, the result of the age price profiles by going through and counting the illustrations and distributing by the ages of the artists. Uh, poetry was a relatively good art to study, in part because there are all these anthologies. And so you could treat them like the textbooks of art, and you could say, what are the most anthologized poems by Eliot or by Frost? The answer turned out to be Prufrock. Prufrock actually is probably the most anthologized uh, poem ever written by an American poet, whereas the, the poem that, that you just played, uh, Stopping by Woods, is Frost's most mm -hmm. anthologized poem. And he wrote it at 48, and we've established Eliot wrote his at 23. Yeah, and again, the contrast between this 23-year-old graduate student sitting in the Harvard Library and writing this imaginary poem compared to Robert Frost sitting at the kitchen table of his chicken farm in New mm -hmm. Hampshire. You know, again, this is the kind of contrast between the, per the, the person doing imaginary conceptual work yeah. as opposed to this very concrete experimental work. You are working in a realm where economics and history actually transect, and it has been labeled in recent years Cleometrics. I, I confess I am a cleometrician by training. How does one define cleometrics? Uh, Cleo is the muse of history, and so cleometrics is using quantitative methods. So this methods. is history of art using quantitative methods? Uh, I believe it is, although that's debated by other people. Well, we'll carry it further and see just where we go with it and examine the fuller argument and all the other very, very interesting comparisons drawn in the new book by David Gallinson, which is titled Old Masters and Young Geniuses, subtitled The Two Life Cycles of Artistic Creativity, that is just published by Princeton University Press. And shortly we'll get on to film directors 
whom you also subject to close study, fitting this ideal type uh, category system. And we'll play some scenes from some of those, the movies of some of those directors, all to follow after this. And we return to David Gallinson and Joshua Coton. David Gallinson is professor of economics at the University of Chicago, also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he's the author of the new book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses, the two life cycles of artistic creativity. Joshua Coton is a graduate student in English, uh, English language and literature at the University of Chicago, the editor of the Chicago Review, and a good friend of David Gallinson, who uh, I gather you two have talked about this stuff a great deal, and now you're doing articles on it, but the book is essentially yours alone, Dave. Yeah, it is. Uh, Josh, uh, I hired Josh to help me try to understand poetry, mm -hmm. which was kind of a daunting task for somebody my age. Um, and I discovered that um, he had read every poem ever written and, and uh, wears his erudition very lightly. Then I discovered, fortuitously, that I was going to go on to study novelists. Josh also has read every novel mm -hmm. ever written, and so he's helped me with that. And we're about to talk about novelists, but before we do, uh, Joshua, what do you make of these two quotations from a man who was a great literary figure, if not a great poet, certainly had an interest in poetry and wrote about poetry, as well as writing his own poetry? I speak of G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. He says, this is, this was, I just delighted, but I have no idea. Of, would you explain what he's after here? He says, poets have been mysteriously silent on the subject of cheese. He also says, lying in bed would be an altogether perfect and supreme experience if only one had a colored pencil long enough to draw on the ceiling. Well, those are pretty impressive quotes. Um, before I get to them, I guess, I guess I'd like to say that whatever, Galen, whatever Professor Galenson said is not exactly true about my erudition. But um, G.K. Chesterton, I'm not, um, I'm not sure if there is a great poem about cheese. There, there, there may be. The only reference to cheese that I can think of is in Treasure Island when really? a Ben, what's his name, is uh, rescued from the Treasure Island, the old hermit. And he says what he wants is a piece of cheese. That's what he's dreamed of for years while isolated on this island uh, uh, surrounded uh, by essentially uh, friendly animals and natives, none of whom knew anything about cheese. But that doesn't carry us very far. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> this would be a challenge for some young poet listening to write at least a, a solid or a villanelle about cheese. I bet there are probably thousands of poets taking up that offer yeah. right now. Now then, uh, what about novels? What about novelists? Uh, who's a good example of a of a burning young conceptual novelist who's a good example of a lasting old master very great burning young conceptual novelist f scott fitzgerald uh-huh uh, who wrote the great american novel before the age of 30. you you mean you mean great gatsby or but he did three or four other novels he did uh, as a matter of fact his his first novel um was a bestseller and it was actually considered, uh, I mean, it was a critical success as well as a popular success. But then with Gatsby, he, he matured um, very, very quickly, very suddenly, and produced a work that at the time was a disappointment. It didn't sell well. Fitzgerald was disappointed in it. Uh, it wasn't a tremendous critical success. Um, it was really only, I think, after Fitzgerald's death that it came to be recognized as perhaps the greatest novel ever written by Well, do American. we find him in The Great Gatsby really... Uh, Rebelling against or otherwise departing from standard technique of the time? I think so. Um, I think, again, what, what young conceptual geniuses do is to combine, uh, mm -hmm. they synthesize devices from earlier 
um, artists. And I think what apparently what, what Fitzgerald did in Gatsby was to come up with a, his, I mean, his earlier work had been um, too personal, too, too much written in the first person. And I think it was a device he borrowed from Conrad to use a narrator and to narrate in the third person. That was one of the, the devices. And he, he combined several others. And, and Gatsby, he produced this very short, um, sparkling novel that now is just standard fare for freshman English courses. Mm -hmm. uh, but about an idea, I think. I think that's the, one of the most important aspects of the great Gatsby. This is a poem about, this is a novel about the, about the American dream. You know, it's not a novel about um, Fitzgerald's experiences or how he perceives the world. It's a novel structured mm -hmm. around presentation of an idea. Isn't it terrible when they make Hollywood movies out of great novels? Uh, you, you can't get Robert Redford out of your mind now if you were to read The Great Gatsby again, though in fact Fitzgerald would never have conceived Gatsby as looking and behaving like Robert Redford. Oh, probably not. Probably not. Who? Uh, now what's a novel of the opposite uh, category? A novel by an old master, or a body of work by an old master. Yeah, it's, it is the body of work for the experimental ones. And speaking of G.K. Chesterton, he identified an example of a great experimental novelist. And just if I can quote very, a very brief passage, yes, G.K. Chesterton contended that most of Charles Dickens' books were in fact not novels because they lacked a key requirement for that form, namely an ending. Thus, Chesterton observed of Pickwick Papers, quote, the point at which, as a fact, we find the printed matter terminates is not an end in any artistic sense of the word. Even as a boy, I believe that there were some more pages that were torn out of my copy, and I am looking for them still. And what, he, what he's doing here is drawing attention to the fact that experimental writers have tremendous problems with plot. Uh, experimental artists, experimental writers, and Dickens is a prime example, they're interested in character. They're interested in scenes, they're interested in atmosphere, but they're not particularly interested in plot, and they have a lot of trouble finishing their books. You know, I think I have a small quarrel with you on the vocabulary. I'm not sure you ought to call them experimental novelists or experimental artists rather than experiential. That is to say, experimental sounds also as if it's a variation from tradition. But you're, not, you're talking about somebody who grows with... A an inherited tradition and may subtly transform it, but essentially works within the path of civilization. Yeah, they, there's no question they are experiential. I use experimental in the specific sense that they work by trial and error. Uh -huh. In contrast to these conceptual people who, who think their work out in advance. They advance, mm -hmm. as, as, as one of the critics said, they advance by cerebration. I think one who really ranks in that category, of whom I've always been extremely fond, is Anthony Trollope who has a large body of work that comes to close to 50 novels. Um, and uh, he, in fact, his method, as you, as you probably know, was utterly workmanlike. He, in his brief memoir, he explains that uh, he wrote every day for two or was it three hours before he went off to his high bureaucratic post at the post office. And um, if he finished a novel uh, on, at seven in the morning, he would take a fresh sheet of paper and start the next novel. Uh, and he had, did a regular quota for those three hours a day, hardly ever scratching out a word. Now, that's a man who is a craftsman, amazing. isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. That and it was good stuff. Very yeah. good stuff. My mom's favorite novelist. Who in... Uh, do we have modern, experiential or experimental old master novelists? I think we do. We have Faulkner. We have Virginia Woolf. Uh-huh. Um, those are two great, and that's that's one of the way, reasons why experimental can fit to 
people that are more avant-garde. Like both of those are major modernists. How would you class Hemingway? Hemingway as a conceptual author. His first book is this great, great book, um, The Sun Also Rises. But he goes on into his, uh, until he commits suicide. Yeah. But how old was he then, in his 60s? I believe so. Yeah. He was, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the end of his life, I mean, during his lifetime, he was a revered figure, and his late work was taken very seriously during mm -hmm. his lifetime. But what our studies have shown is that since he died, the late work has really fallen enormously. Well, the last great work that got a lot of attention was The Old Man and the Sea. Yeah. Now, what cleometric data do we have about that? Well, what we did for the novelists was to take critical monographs on mm -hmm. each of the novelists we study, and Hemingway was one. And we took at least 10 critical monographs that dealt with the entire career of the novelist, and we counted the, the number of pages devoted to each of the of the writer's mm -hmm. novels. And for Hemingway, uh, The Old Man and the Sea was, was not one of the higher-ranked novels. It was the early novels. And again, that seemed to coincide with the critical judgments. I mean, when, when Hemingway, actually, by the time he died, it was pretty much recognized that it was his early contribution uh, that was important. I mean, I have just a few of the, the quotes here. Irving Howe wrote in an obituary that Hemingway was always a young writer, and then he did his best work early in his career, and, and Howe said most of his late work was bad, Papa gone soft. Alberto mm -hmm. Moravia was the toughest in, in saying this. I guess the Americans were a little more charitable. But Moravia said that throughout his life, Hemingway had remained in an infantile and precocious state of arrested development. And this is the criticism of, conceptual, of many conceptual artists. Moravia said that he was incapable of developing or adding anything of value to his early naive nihilism. The idea is these artists have a vision at the very beginning of their careers, and they very often get stuck in that rut. His last published novel, I think, was Across the River and Into the Trees, wasn't it? Which is a very childish thing. Uh, can, you, can you summarize what he does in that novel? Actually, I can't. Um, this is where I can prove that, that Professor Galenson is a little bit incorrect and my well, he's knowledge old, of every he, novel ever written. He's an old man, a war uh, veteran of some kind, a colonel maybe or something, and he's in love with a young Italian countess. Uh, I read the book when I was in college, and, and my, my main memory is that Irving Howe is exactly right. Most of his late work was bad, Papa gone soft. Papa it was very self-indulgent, yeah. I remember. And you see, part of, part of what happened with Hemingway, and this is, this is part of the problem with the conceptual, with very successful conceptual artists, when they become successful young, they begin to believe their own press. The early Hemingway is powerful because it's very sparse. He was very tough on himself. Well, that's the Hemingway style. Absolutely. But then as he grew older, he indulged in purple prose, and the sentences get mm -hmm. longer, and they become stylized in a sort of biblical way, and they get very self-indulgent, and he becomes almost a parody of himself. I must ask you uh, about some modern novelists who've got a long record and a lot of work behind them, uh, and uh, how one would classify or think about them. The obvious ones who come to mind are the Jewish mafia, so to speak. Philip Roth... Saul Bellow, Bernard Malamud, uh, Irving, uh, rather uh, Norman Mailer, would sometimes be counted in the same group. Are they all old masters? Are they conceptual? What are they? Um, well, Norman Mailer and uh, Philip Roth are these great young early novels. But they're still around. Both they are, they're still, still around. around, especially Philip Roth is doing yeah. still great, great work. But still, I, I, I would imagine in 50 years from now, the great work that's going to be remembered are, is going to be Goodbye Columbus and The Naked and the Dead. Mm -hmm. They're great early novels. 
there is a, there is a one important point here, and that is that uh, the work doesn't have to be bad, but relatively bad. I mean, these are we're talking about some very great artists, and so they don't have mm -hmm. to do bad work. But but the you know if the early work is is the great work, then that's what's remembered. You've been at the University of Chicago for some time, David. Did you know uh, Saul Vella? I, you know, I had an office next to his, and we used to, we used to say hello. He was very polite, uh -huh. but we never we never had serious conversations. Have you read most of his novels? I have. What do you think? He's an example. How does it fit your category? He's an example of an exp of a I think a very important experimental novelist, in this in in specific sense. Uh, and this was this was very clear in the obituaries. The critics would say, you know, this was a great novelist, but there's no one novel that comes to mm -hmm. mind when you think of Saul Bellow, and that is a characteristic of great of many great experimental artists. They make a great body of work, but no one work that emerges as the masterpiece, because they're working incrementally. Cezanne did that in his paintings. Uh, Bellow did it in his in his novels. Uh, Frost, to some extent, did it in his poems. There's this contrast. The conceptual people emerge. They have their ideas. They can very often embody them in a single masterpiece that becomes the towering work. Whereas in contrast, in all of these arts, the experimental people, they work piecemeal, gradually. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we, there's a lot of disagreement as to you know what people's favorite novel by, by Saul Bellow is. By the way, before we stop for some commercials, then on to the film directors, but one odd piece that remains, going back to, uh, going to painters, which we haven't, though you've worked heavily on painters, we haven't really talked much about that tonight, nor will we, I think. But I was amazed to discover from uh, your book that uh, the Picasso paintings that sell really well at high prices are the ones from his early youth, and that though he was an old master who lived on into his 90s virtually, I think, and painted, painted, painted all the time, the uh, work of his mature years brings much lower uh, auction value. The light work is important only because it has his signature on yeah. it. You will not see it in the great museums. You will not see the light work in the art hanging in the Art Institute. What explains this? Uh, Picasso was a very, uh, Picasso was the greatest uh, painter, perhaps the greatest artist of the 20th century. Um, at the age of 26, he invented Cubism, which is by far the most important movement, again, not only in painting, but in the visual arts in general. Uh, it, it had a massive impact on sculpture, even on, on film. Um, and again, Cubism was a synthesis. It was, it was a very dramatic, bold, unexpected synthesis of, of a number of earlier art in, of artists, including not only Cezanne and Gauguin, but also of African art. Um, Picasso says at one point, the world today doesn't make sense, so why should I paint pictures that do? Mm -hmm. uh, but again, see, Picasso was somebody, Picasso was a very great conceptual artist. He made more than that single innovation, but the greatest innovation he ever made was at age 26. Mm -hmm. He made other, again, other important ones later, but, uh, and so actually he was still doing important work in his 50s. He painted Guernica, which was an important contribution. Yes. After that, you simply won't find his work in the textbooks when for the later years. When does he paint the Demoiselle de Avignon? Age 26. He's in, in 1907. It is, yeah. it is the most important painting of the 20th century. Yeah, really? Yes. It is in something like 90% of all textbooks of art history that cover that period. On to the great directors, film directors, directly after we pause for this. And we return to... David Gallinson and Joshua Coton. Joshua Coton is the editor of the Chicago Review and uh, a graduate student in English at the University of Chicago. David Gallinson is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago and the author of the book, which is the text 
uh, that on which we are doing explication this very night. Old Masters and Young Geniuses, The Two Life Cycles of Artistic Creativity, just published by Princeton, and it names names. I love books that illustrate their thesis with lots of references to stuff one knows about. And with you only get about one chapter, even a portion of a chapter on film directors, but that certainly caught my interest. Who is a good, What's a good pair to illustrate the... Uh, this distinction between old master and young genius. Probably the great pair is Orson Welles, who does his best film very early on, Citizen Kane, and perhaps Hitchcock, whose most popular oh. important film is Vertigo. Which well, let's age. talk about Orson Welles then. Great. We've had a number of biographers of Orson Welles on this program oh, really? over the years. There have been a number of interesting biographies. One of them is by that English actor, excellent actor, I forget his name now, who did a biography of Wells about five or six years ago. There were two or three others before that over the long years. Uh, was Wells really merely a conceptual genius who burned out, or was he rather somehow uh, blackballed by the industry so that, though he made lots of other films, he could never have access to all that he needed to continue his art? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the stories on Wells, that he could never recover from the battle with Hearst over Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other great experimental directors have overcome lots of adversity to go on to make great movies. And Wells Wells did Wells overcame that adversity, made good movies afterwards, the Magnificent Ambersons and especially Touch of Evil, but nothing compares to the influence of, and the importance of Citizen Kane. Do you know his late Shakespearean films? He did an Othello, which it took him about 10 years to do on and off. But also, The Chimes at Midnight is a wonderful It's a film. wonderful film. It's what I was going to say. I mean, Wells made wonderful films throughout his career. The tragedy of, a, of an artist like Wells is that if you make the most mm -hmm. important movie of, ever made when you're 26 years old, then the rest of your career has to be an anticlimax. You're peaking too soon. It's not too, you know, who are we to say too soon when, when you've, you know, you've fundamentally changed your discipline for, you know, the next hundred years. Um, but it's a, it, it can be a personal tragedy. Let's remind people of Citizen Kane, even before we talk about it in detail. Let's hear a scene from it. The scene we've got, I believe, is, let me read what I've got here. Uh, Charles Foster Kane, Campaigns for Governor. There's only one man who can rid the politics of this state of the evil domination of boss Jim Geddes. Hooray! I am speaking of Charles Foster Kane, the fighting liberal, the friend of the working man, the next governor of this state who entered upon this campaign with one purpose only, to point out and make public the dishonesty, the downright villainy of boss Jim W. Geddes' political machine. Now in complete control! of the government of this state. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> now, however, I have something more than a hope. And Jim Geddes, Jim Geddes has something less than a chance. <laughs> Every straw vote, Every independent poll shows that I'll be elected. <laughs> now I can afford to make some promises. <laughs> the working man, the working man, 
And the slum child know they can expect my best efforts in their interests. The decent, ordinary citizens know that I'll do everything in my power to protect the underprivileged, the underpaid, and the underfed. if I weren't too busy arranging to keep them. <laughs> Here's one promise I'll make. And boss Jim Geddes knows I'll keep it. My first official act as governor of the state will be to appoint a special district attorney to arrange for the indictment, prosecution, and conviction of boss Jim W. Geddes. <laughs> Now, one of the problems with doing just the audio uh, from a film, particularly that film, is uh, the visual changes uh, are not necessarily clear to the audience. Uh, but I remember this quite well. Can you, as you heard it, did you see uh, what was happening on the screen? Well, it's gaining more and more of an audience. Well, you start to begin with with somebody else talking about him, yeah. and then it suddenly you hear Wells's voice, and the, this is the big rally. Right. And of course, towards the end of this rally, as he's condemning uh, uh, boss Geddes, uh, Geddes is in a balcony with Wells's, with Kane's wife, uh, and he's. Um, how does that go from there? Isn't it, is, is there a blackmail? Well, of course, that's a blackmail plot that he is beginning to unfold at yeah. that point, because Charles Foster Kane has been maintaining a mistress. And Geddes reveals that to the wife, who then wants to talk, uh, wants to talk to Charles Foster Kane about this. It's a central part of the picture. But the point is, there's a vast amount of visual uh, occurrence, even in those few minutes that we just heard. With it, one, one of the famous innovations of the film is this extremely deep focus. I mean, it's, it's yes. the first movie that has action both simultaneously in the foreground and the background, and all these, and, and they shoot from from ground level. These very dramatic visual innovations and tremendous switches in time. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 part of the the greatness of the achievement is that uh, Wells makes these technical achieve these technical innovations in uh, in the photography. He makes a series of technical innovations in the sound. But this isn't just virtuosity. He's not just showing off. This is tied to the theme of the movie. I mean, the theme of the movie obviously is a series of different views. I mean, this this newspaper mm -hmm. was trying to get a view a a, a 360 degree view of this person who has died, and everybody he talks to has a different vision of Charles Foster Kane. And part of the point is that all of these technical innovations that syncopate, they, they divide, they, they break the movie into parts, they reinforce the message that there is no one view, that this is just, there's a series of fragments. I mean, if this is cubism, if you will, this is for you to put together these fragments. But this is not a seamless whole. The reporter can't make a seamless whole, and, nor can the viewer. And all of it is strung on the guiding mystery of the film. Uh, the last words of Charles Foster Kane, the last word, which was rosebud. And what did rosebud mean? I suppose by now everybody knows what rosebud meant. Every, I think everybody knows uh, literally what it referred to, and I think most people realize that it doesn't necessarily have any significance. It's also been pointed out by somebody that the film is intrinsically illogical. We see the rosebud scene, that is, Kane's death, rather early in the film, 
and he is alone. Uh, a uh, Something slips from his hand and falls on the floor as he says, Rosebud. But there's no nurse, no doctor standing by. How then do we know that his last words, his last word was Rosebud? And it's a good example of the fact that conceptual artists are willing to violate the rules of nature, if you will. John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock would not have used that plot device. Or would have had somebody standing by, at least. If they would have had to. I mean, they could not have violated the rules of nature in that way. If, yes. if, if something is going to be heard, somebody has to be there to hear it. Interesting. Ford wouldn't have done it that way. I guess it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's the view that the, the ex, it's the difference between the experimental and conceptual directors. The experimental directors will consistently say, I want people to forget they're watching a movie. I want them to, to forget that there's a camera. Whereas if you think about Citizen Kane, you're constantly reminded it's a movie. They, yeah. they make these illogical leaps in time. They make illogical leaps in vision. In Ford's version of Citizen Kane, if it had been done, Jimmy Stewart would have been standing by. And afterwards he would say, he said, uh, uh, he said Rosebud. And that would give us the plot line. Uh, we are, I say it's time for some commercials. They're coming in just a moment. Well, we're going to go on with this analysis of uh, great directors and their style, whether... Uh, as old masters or as young geniuses. I wonder about Francis Ford Coppola. I think he might class as a young genius. And when we return, we'll listen to some scenes from his great film, his great two-part film, though he did a third part, uh, namely The Godfather. We return directly after this. And back to Old Masters and Young Geniuses. That's the title of the new book by David W. Gallinson, one of our guests tonight, the other Joshua Coton of the English Department, both the University of Chicago. And... Uh, I had a gustatory experience in a restaurant, which reminds me of the man we're about to talk about. You'll see why. Uh, it was just a week or two ago, and uh, uh, we were dining in a nice restaurant in Chicago, and I ordered a steak, a small steak, mind you. Uh, and the waiter said, uh, would you have wine? I said, yes, please. He said, what do you want? I would say, well, I think a nice Cabernet, if you can, what would you suggest? And he brought me three bottles, and one of them was Coppola. Uh, Coppola the winemaker rather than Coppola the film director and I decided I would try that I never had had it before it was good good wine from California I, why do I tell you all of this because that's what the man is doing now rather than making movies he ran into some adversity this was a young genius who made these wonderful wonderful movies as a young director just out of film school and then continued to try to make these very large budget blockbusters and met with less and less success well, he did that one about Vietnam Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's an illustration of a conceptual artist at work. I mean, here's, here's Coppola describing what he did. Uh, he, did he, he did enormous amounts of research for his films. And so for Apocalypse Now, he said, I made a list of all the things you would have to touch on to make an honest film about, about Vietnam. And there were 200 things like the use of drugs, the fact that black soldiers were up at the front line, the fact that American officers lived in affluence and played golf, that American soldiers, they were very young. And my list went on and on, thing after thing. I tried as well as I could to get as many of those things into the film. For those of you who choose to see the film again, you will see that every inch of it is packed with some other point. So this is a conceptual artist systematically constructing a work of art that has a whole series of facts. But pretty pretty soon after that, he gave up making movies. Uh, because his his early inspiration was gone. I mean, the the great work was the was the early work. But let's talk about the great work. To what degree do the first two Godfather films, rather than the third, which was made some twenty years later, I think, and may well, very well have been at last gasp, and is viewed as 
uh, critically as rather unsuccessful compared to the first two. To what degree did the first two break with the conventions of or the stylistic tradition of American film? Well, it was the, the great American epic, um, three-part series of uh, bringing um, about the but an Italian family coming over to the New World and their interaction and life in the, in the New World. And I think that that idea, just the idea of that mix was, was a really unique innovation. Perhaps so. An epic three films long, you mean? Not just the epic three films long, but the subject matter of the films. So there were other three-part epics, yeah. especially in the 70s, which was a very popular time for those kind of trilogies. But this kind of sweeping family drama Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Coppola didn't want to simply describe individuals or describe the world as he saw it. He said that his movies might deviate from apparent reality, but they were intended to explore what we are as a people and a nation and a world. He was going for big themes, big sweep, big, big, big ideas. Symbols, I think, like things that represent other things. It starts, I think, just about the very first scene in the movie is the wedding scene, is it not? That's true. And here is a portion of the wedding scene. Ladies, you never told me you knew Johnny Fontaine. Sure. You want to meet him? Huh? Oh, uh, sure. My father helped him in his career. Oh, my God. He did? How? I have but one song. No, Michael. This heart I bring. I have but one heart to share with you. I have but one dream that I can cling to. You are the one dream I pray comes true. My darling, until I saw you. Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract from the big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. And he offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. Within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How did he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head. And my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. That's my family, Kate. It's not me. Masterly filmmaking. And, and enormously important. Uh, mm -hmm. Sight and Sound, the British Film Institute's magazine, every, every 10 years does a poll of several hundred critics from all over the world, and they ask them to, to rank their 10 best movies. 
on on the basis of all of those responses, Sight and Sound ranks the 10 most important movies of all time. Citizen Kane is number one. Godfather Part 1 and 2 is ranked number four in the 2002 poll. Uh, enormously influential movie, movies, plural, um, Coppola began the new Hollywood. He was the inspiration for people like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Uh, just a year out of UCLA, Coppola was making a feature at Warner Brothers. I think it was Finian's Rainbow, and it just it sent shockwaves through the film schools. And this generation of young conceptual directors then was inspired to 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 raise their sights. Mm -hmm. Um, so these movies are not only very entertaining, very innovative, but they're also enormously influential. Now, you mentioned Spielberg. He also starts young and has early success, but he's still there, still making movies that get an awful lot of attention. Has his quality as a director declined, or is he uh, a blazing young genius who's turning into an old master? Well, I think his early work is definitely his most important work. Um, Which he, films do you mean? Jaws. E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, is Raiders of the Lost Ark Spielberg or Luca? Yes. Spielberg. Yes. S yes. Yeah, and he's still making movies today, like Munich, maybe an important film, Schindler's List. And he's a good example of one way conceptual artists stay fresh and stay alive is by changing genres all the time. Uh -huh. So he made his early successes were in these big blockbusters and almost invented the, this genre that was new to American cinema. And then later on, he changed styles in order to stay stay fresh. And he's made a couple of um, critically acclaimed movies since then. But I think that the early ones really defined um, a new style of Hollywood filmmaking. I, I would argue that Schindler's List is really a great film, um, which will last. Maybe he's obscured it a bit by this film he's just put out, Munich, which seems to half excuse the murderer's at the Munich Olympics, but um, Schindler's List, I think, is a um, an evocation of the meaning of the Holocaust and the horror of the Holocaust, which really leaves images that haunt you. Critically, there there's a there's definitely a split over the significance of Schindler's List. There are enormous admirers, as you've just said. There are also very great detractors. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard said that that Schindler's List was Max Factor. He said this was completely artificial. Really, this was using um, you know, this, this orchestration, falsifying history, not telling the truth about Schindler. And it, it, the interesting question, again, will be what the impact the, the movie has on younger directors. I mean, ultimately, that's the test of importance. Um, uh, Spielberg's early work clearly influenced other directors. The, the, the question, is, I think, is probably still open. Schindler's probably recent enough that we probably can't fully judge. Mm -hmm. One other director who interests me considerably, and again, we've got scenes from some of his movies, we might play some of them shortly, is Stanley Kubrick. Um, how does he classify in your typological system? Uh, a great conceptual director. He works very systematically. He's, uh, he's, he's much more interested in plot than in characterization. Uh, he, again, you know, a number of critics say Kubrick treats people as puppets. Um, Kubrick was fascinated by ideas. It was the idea that got him interested in a movie, and it was the idea that motivated all of his work on the movies. Uh, again, he was looking for big themes and big abstract ideas, and uh, the people didn't much get in his way. 
And I, and I think that it's a great example, too, of a great conceptual innovator that changes genre with every film. If you look at something like Frost or Hitchcock, there's great continuity between, the, between their artworks. And you can see a real development between them, then learning through their experiences. And someone like Kubrick, who makes many great, great films, but each one is brand new. And each one's a brand new type of innovation, from a great comedy like Dr. Strangelove to a movie that's completely different, like 2001. But he does go on into advanced years, does he not? Uh, Eyes Wide Shut was his last film, and it was released only, I think, about three years ago. How old was he then? Was he in his 60s? I think so. I mean, and he's an example. I mean, the great ones don't have to do bad work. They just have to do relatively bad work late. Yeah. And I think that's the case. I mean, Kubrick's, when you do very, very great work young, it's very hard to match that when you uh -huh. get older. I think most people would agree that Eyes Wide Shut is not nearly as great as his, his early work. It's a very fascinating film, but not com compared to maybe <laughs> everyone else's films, but compared to 2001. One of my favorites is uh, Dr. Strangelove. And uh, would you like a scene from Dr. Strange? Wonderful. Just for our listeners to be reminded of that wonderful film, which is really composed, I would say, in a very artful, almost surreal way, uh, with tremendous acting, but fast cross-cutting and extreme acting. The actors are pushed uh, to uh, the level of a caricature. I think of um, whatever his name was, the actor who plays the general at the airbase. Uh, Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden. One is one I'd seen Hayden around in Hollywood films for years, but in this one he's a madman. But it, he does a madman superbly. It takes you time when he comes to the point that he's explaining to uh, to Captain Mandrake, also played by Peter Sellers, that he must protect us from those who are trying to steal, must protect himself from those who are trying to steal his vital. Um, Liquid uh, substances or something. Our, bodily, yeah. our vital bodily fluids. Yeah, bodily it, it, fluids. There you see, are. The, yeah. the very language you use points to conceptual surreal uh -huh. and caricature. Those are conceptual characteristics. John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, they didn't do surreal and they didn't to do caricature. Sure. And here's the ultimate surreal uh, role, also played by Peter Sellers. This is the Nazi scientist uh, who is advising President. What's the um, president? Mumbley. Muffin is his second name or something. Also played by Peter Sellers. He plays those three roles. And here is Peter Sellers advising the president and others in the war room about the doomsday machine. Afraid I don't understand something, Alexei. Is the Premier threatening to explode this if our planes carry out their attack? No, sir. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The doomsday machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. But surely you can disarm it somehow? No. It is designed to explode if any attempt is ever made to untrigger it. Automatically? Ah, it's an obvious common trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the big war. They're getting ready to cloud us. Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? There are those of us who fought against it. But in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race, and the peace race. And at the same time, our people grumbled for more nylons and washing machines. Our doomsday scheme cost us just a small fraction of what we've been spending on defense in a single year. But the deciding factor was when we learned that your country was working along similar lines, and we were afraid of a doomsday gap. This is preposterous. I've never approved of anything like that. Our source was the New York Times. Dr. Strangelove, do we have anything like that in the works? A moment, please, Mr. President. Under the authority granted me as Director of Weapons Research and Development, 
I commissioned last year a study of this project by the Blend Corporation. Based on the findings of the report, my conclusion was that this idea was not a practical deterrent for reasons which at this moment must be all too obvious. Then you mean it is possible for them to have built such a thing? Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. But how is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger? Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so, because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Stacey. Wonderful. The visual stuff, that again, we... Uh, can't convey by listening to the audio, involves uh, strange loves in a wheelchair. And what's the business about the arm? Uh, it goes back to his experience as a Nazi. Um, but but this is, I mean, Kubrick is a director who effectively is writing books. He's, the arm is an artificial arm, yeah. somehow, and it keeps insisting on raising itself in the Nazi salute yeah. as Sellers, as Dr. Strangelove, is fighting it to get it back down. As he gets excited, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, Kubrick, again, Kubrick is this obsessive person because he knows exactly what he wants to accomplish mm. with his movies, so he, he produces his own movies as well as directs them. He writes the scripts, he directs the research, he selects the costumes, he chooses the music, he cuts and edits the footage, he directed the publicity campaigns. Terry Southern uh, collaborated with Kubrick on the script for Dr. Strangelove, and... He compared Kubrick to two other great conceptual directors. Southern said, I was fascinated by this new thing of director as God, like Fellini and Bergman. I mean, this, this is an auteur. This is, a, mm -hmm. this is a personal vision. Do we have any such still around? Would, would Scorsese classify as of that type? Scorsese, I actually believe, is an experimental director, um, and, and he himself has, has recognized why he was at a disadvantage compared to his friends, compared to Lucas and compared to Spielberg, because his movies are realistic. They're about the people mm -hmm. he grew up with. Um, he personally wasn't a gangster, evidently, but, but he says, you know, these, this, he says, my movies are just about guys talking on Well, but he does orders. Edith Wharton. He does uh, Katzenzakis's The Temptation of Christ. Uh, but he doesn't do them with this simple morality that Lucas and Spielberg use to such enormous commercial success. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I mean, he's always felt that, again, he was at a commercial disadvantage compared to his, compared to these friends. Well, Lucas, I think, works at a juvenile level. Uh, and I find him rather boring for that. And and he's made staggering amounts of I'm money. I'm sure he has. It. Yeah. Uh, we are going to pause for the usual reasons. Um, and in a while, we'll go on to the phones. We're opening the lines right now. If you want to join us to pose a question, offer a thought, uh, categorize 
some other artist or some other whole realm of art uh, into old masters and young geniuses, we look forward to hearing from you. The number as ever is 591-7200. 591-7200. If you are listening over the Internet at some great distance and in some other country, perhaps, and you want to join us, the easy way, of course, is via email, and the email address is, as ever, extension720 at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com, or 591-7200. We'll be shortly onto your calls. First, these words. And we will be onto the phones in just a few minutes. Uh, but there's one thing I do want to traverse before we go to the phones, and that is... Um, back to paintings, back to visual art, and uh, a sort of a, a tour through the great assembly of great Western art, and for that matter, Eastern art, at the Art Institute of Chicago. As you want, as you yourself wander through, David Gallinson, do you automatically think of young geniuses and old masters? Absolutely. I mean, in, you know, I, I now go and, uh, and look at the labels on the paintings and calculate the age of the artist mm -hmm. when he made those paintings. And see, we have a tremendous advantage in Chicago because we have a great museum. And, and so it, it shows us particularly clearly the application of the analysis. So, for example, when you, when you walk through the Art Institute, you will see almost exclusively late Cezannes and you'll see almost exclusively early Picassos. And this is a great luxury. If if this were a weaker museum, they, they would the they prices, would hang they? they would hang late Picassos and they might hang early early uh -huh. Cezans. Uh, but for example, also at the Art Institute, we have something that's really unique: um, the Grand Jatte, the famous painting by Seurat. Uh, this is a very great conceptual artist who created this this tremendous masterpiece when he was effectively a graduate student. I mean, this was a masterpiece almost in the traditional guild sense because this was a demonstration of a theory about the perception of color. It's called pointillism. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, or divisionism, I mean, the, the idea of dividing the colors in a systematic way, a mathematical way. Uh, this is this artist in his mid-twenties who makes 50, 50 preparatory works for this great painting and then executes it systematically in order to be a masterpiece. And today, that painting is, is in, it's illustrated in more textbooks than any other painting made in the 19th but century. But it exists in a few versions. Is the one at the Art Institute the prime version? It's the final version. Yes, yeah. and there is an earlier version that is called the final preparatory study for the Grand Jai. Really? Uh -huh. um, this, is a, this was a young, a young person who, was, who was, didn't work like a young person. I mean, he was sort of born middle-aged, as a lot of conceptual people are. He was born mature and he systematically prepared to make a masterpiece. How did the rest of his career work out? Uh, he went on to other theories. His career was cut short. He died very early. He died in his early 30s. Um, but again, he was, he was setting out to prove, to, to, to do demonstrations of other theories. What else do we see as we're doing our, our stroll through? Are pictures at an exhibition? Well, there's another really stroll. interesting, uh, there's an interesting example in the Art Institute of a phenomenon that I, I'm a, I was a great fan, I've always been a great fan of popular music. And popular music, there are these things called one-hit wonders. There are these bands that make mm -hmm. one great song and are never heard from again. And the Art Institute has an example of this in art. This is a phenomenon of the conceptual artist. There are a number of relatively minor artists who make one masterpiece almost early, almost always at a very early age, and again never make other important works. And uh, Gustav Kayabuts, the famous painting at the Art Institute, this very big painting that you see when you walk up the main mm -hmm. stairs into the into the Impressionist galleries, 
uh, rainy, rainy weather Paris street is a one-hit wonder. This is a masterpiece made by an artist who did lots of other really lovely paintings, but no other really important statements. So this is, this is an example of a one-hit wonder. Uh, there's another one hit, famous one-hit wonder in the Art Institute, and that's American Gothic. Well, but Grant Wood went on and on and on in his career, sure. Made many other, many other paintings, but none nearly as famous as that one image. But uh, one could cavil and really start an interesting uh, set of contentions over the question of whether popularity is the final index of creativity. Not popularity. It's, re it's really, you know, my belief is that the importance of the work depends on its influence on other artists. And, and mm -hmm. here, what we have when we, when we look at the art market or when we look at the textbooks, we have these paintings being valued according to the degree to which they influence other artists. Uh, the importance of paintings is not determined by critics. It's not determined by the public. It's determined by other artists. And you're not equating importance with aesthetic value. No, absolutely not. Uh, one of the important, one of the most important art objects of the 20th century was a porcelain, a manufactured porcelain urinal that Marcel Duchamp purchased and signed with a fictitious name. Yes. Enormously influential, um, we, you know, great debate over its aesthetic value. Some people actually find it attractive. Um, but, but as you say, there is no connection mm -hmm. between aesthetic value and, and artistic importance unless other artists happen to be attracted by the aesthetics of the work. We are due for another batch of commercials coming uh, shortly after the last, but I want to catch up with those so that directly after we can go to the phones. Uh, for a while, all of our phones were filled, but uh, Maggie Burnt, uh, who um, screens them, uh, is sometimes uh, appropriately tough and when she makes the cut. So not everybody has got through. There are now, again, available some spaces on our phone bank and if you were trying to reach us, make another quick try. 5917200 for anything you want to ask or assert concerning uh, the nature of art and the nature of um, these two types of artists, whether in the literary arts or in the graphic arts or in film itself, old masters and young geniuses. And we'll be right on to your calls and emails after these words. And we will go directly to the phones, 5917200 for your questions and comments to David Gallinson and Joshua Cogin. And here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Uh, I'm thinking of theoretical physics. Einstein was in his early 20s with his first relativity, and Descartes was pretty young uh, when he came up with, I think, was the idea of calculus. How does this apply to, I guess, theoretical science where you're actually imagining new ground before it's even measurable? Well, I'm ve that's a very welcome question. Uh, I think the, the broader form of that question is, does this apply to the intellectual disciplines, whatever they are, even to being uh, a, a, a contributor of good scholarly work on literature? Yeah, I, I believe that this is uh, general to all intellectual activity. And you know, as the caller says, when you use the word theoretical, you're talking about things that are abstract, you're talking about things that are conceptual, and you are talking about careers that usually peak very, very early in life. As I read your book and thought about academic careers, and uh, thanks to that caller, I thought inevitably with pure egoistic uh, uh, self-indulgence, I thought of my own career as a social psychologist who published a fair amount, not as much as some do, but then I was always very proud of the fact that most of the articles I did were anthologized, some of them many times. 
but some of the ones I cherished most done later on in my career didn't get the attention that some of the earlier ones did. Another index is translation into other languages. There's one piece of mine, it was a chapter in a book, which has been translated into some four different languages, not at my behest, but just quite independently. I was asked, I've always loved the German translation for the sheer euphony of the title, Etitudenveränderung und Außenpolitik in der Ära des Kalten Krieges, which sounds a little bit like Dr. Strangelove, actually. But um, I think it's probably, I think it's true of my career as a, as a tr rather trivial social psychologist, and maybe it's true of most academic careers, that the stuff that gets most attention is done in the, um, for me, it was done in the late 20s on through the 30s, I would say, though uh, I've, the last technical article I published, rather than journalistic one, I published uh, some 30 or 40 years after that. Well, I mean, it, it may well be that this is conceptual work, but I, I think it's, it's also possible that you're pointing to something that's a problem in our society, and that is that a number of people who are experimental are not fully appreciated. Their late work isn't fully appreciated for several reasons. Uh, first of all, there's this, this widespread assumption in our society that creativity mm -hmm. is the domain of youth. Now, mm -hmm. that's wrong. I, I, simply, I simply believe that's, that's incorrect. In your own field, economics, is that incorrect? Uh, it's, economics is dominated by conceptual innovators, and so um, most of the Nobel Prizes go mm -hmm. to theorists. Most of the, the awards, most of the, most, most of the really important people in the discipline are uh, conceptual, but there are some of us who are experimental, and I think that, again, this, this is part of the problem, that uh, experimental people very often improve their work with age, but they are not taken as seriously because they're not considered as intelligent as the conceptual ones. If they, were, if they were that smart, they would have done great work when they were young, wouldn't they? But also because if your work gets better gradually, uh, your, your colleagues, your peers may not see that. They may already have a preconception of the quality of your work and they may not see the quality of the late work. When you talk about stuff like this, inevitably you think of particular people in particular careers. A man who comes instantly to mind, even as you were just saying what you did about economists, uh, is Kenneth Galbraith, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who at the age of 95 is still, I don't know whether he's still writing, he did a book only about two years ago, I think, and he's done an awful lot of popular writing. I suppose he's also done technical writing to other economists. Uh, does that same trajectory hold for his career? Is, Galbraith is a, is a little bit of a tricky case, but to the extent that he was influential within economics, it was the earlier work. It was the idea of the concentration of power in, mm -hmm. in, in our society and uh, you know, the, the new industrial state. What do you make, Joshua, of critical careers, those who write about literature? There have been, there's recently a new biography of, of Edwin Wilson, mm -hmm. of Edmund Wilson, uh, and uh, he's now generally categorized as our great non-academic uh, critic, of, of man of great... Uh, a man of letters of great quality in the history of American literature. Do you take him as such? Yeah, I think he is. And there are a lot of examples of... And he went on and on into his 70s. Yes, he did. Um, and writing great work by the decade. You can buy his books in the bookstore by the decade of his mm -hmm. most influential work, um, from the 20s to the 60s. And then there are 
people who do the great work very young, like William Empson, who's one of the great um, English critics, who his great book was written as his bachelor's um, thesis. That's seven, seven Types of Ambiguity. Exactly, yeah. that's exactly right. And he was in his early 20s, and he wrote that under I.A. Richards. Mm -hmm. And that was his, that's his great, great work. But I, I agree with David when he was talking about um, recognizing older work at the Chicago Review. We always have to be very vigilant when we get submissions in. We'll get submissions from poets all the time who we may know their earlier work and not respect it very much. And then we should keep an open mind for their late work because they can change and improve. Back to the movies, I think, with this next caller, 591-7200. Some lines are available again if you want to join us. Do move quickly. And you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, yeah, I'm enjoying the show, but I wanted to ask you about three directors specifically who did great work as old men. Hitchcock, who directed Frenzy, I think, when he was 72. John Huston, who directed um, Pritchie's Honor when he was about 80. And then last year, Bergman, who I think was 86 when he directed, was a Saraband. I, di I didn't see that one. But I'm wondering what your ideas are as far as the types of artists they are and also, you know, their exceptions to the rule. Because all three of those men, you know, had success early on in their careers and virtually continued throughout. Uh, let me add one other. Uh, the, what's his name? The man who directed Lawrence of Arabia. Lean? David uh, Lean? David Lean. Didn't he come back to directing to do that film after some 20 years of not doing a film? Well, he directed Passage to India. Even later, was it? Oh, that was his last film. Yeah. But also he was he was working in his 60s or, right, 60s or thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think you have to look at... Um, Hitchcock and Houston as great experimental directors, and Berkman as the kind of conceptual director that we discussed earlier, whose great work was very early, um, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, but someone who kept innovating um, by changing their styles and changing the genres of their films to, to go on to do, so Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries, on to do Persona and The Silence, and his great late movie in 1980, I think, um, Fanny and Alexander. And they're all drastically different films, but the early ones are the ones that kind of stand the test of time and the ones that became the most influential. But Hitchcock's films really didn't change that much except they got a little more graphic like Psycho and Frenzy, but basically the themes were the same. That's exactly right. And Hitchcock's someone that maybe David would like to take over on this, but someone who got better when they got older as, as they learned from their craft and didn't have to change. They learned through their experience making those films. But exactly as the caller says, I mean, that, that's a prime characteristic of experimental artists. Their work doesn't change ever radically. It changes very, very incrementally. They work by trial and error, but they don't know exactly how they want to change, so they, they're very tentative. They change little by little. And Hitchcock's an example. I, I mean, I agree completely. His, his films, they're all distinct, but they're all part of the same body of work in a way that, that, uh, that Bergman's aren't. Bergman's change radically from, from film to film. To the caller, sir, what do you consider uh, the greatest of all the Hitchcock films? Uh, well, Rear, window. Rear I know, window. I know the thing now is to say Vertigo, but Rear Window to me has all the great Hitchcock elements. Oh, Vertigo was on earlier tonight. In fact, I was watching it, and the same prism I always had about it. the first hour is very slow moving. Vertigo? Yeah, uh, Vertigo. Yeah. Rear Window is just is just great, and from a non-character aspect, North by Northwest was just pure. Oh yes. Fence and Chase, just pure entertainment. But those two films, I think, are better than Vertigo. Actually. Well, all the same, we can offer you a scene from Vertigo. We don't have the others handy, and we do offer that. Well, to our... and if I could just say, see, here we are discussing 
which of several films made at the ages of 55, 59, and 60 is the best. And so, you know, this is exactly the point that there's no landmark, he there's no single work that's obviously the best, but these these are all the late, and he, he the was, late Hitchcock. Thus he was an old master. Absolutely. Really getting older at that time. Here is a scene from Vertigo, Scotty and Madeline at the bell tower. Uh, let me go to the church alone, it says here. We shall hear it. Look, it's not fair. It's too late. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. It shouldn't have happened. But it had to happen. We're in love. That's all that counts. Let me go, please. Let, let me go. Listen. You believe I love you? Yes. And if you lose me, then you know I, I loved you and I wanted to go on loving you. Let me go into the church. Alone. Why? What's happening visually in that scene? Um, they're up on the, the, the bell tower. This is it. Is it the final scene uh, of the film? And uh, about halfway through. Ha ha halfway through. Okay. Um, well, Stuart is uh, uh, slowly unraveling the plot of um, the double the double life of uh, oh, what, 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 what's the actor Kim Novak's yeah. double, double double life. Both as blonde and as brunette. Both as blonde and brunette, yes. No. Loves the blonde. Um, we are due, overdue for some commercials. A quick pause for those, then back to the phones. And there's one poem I would still like to hear. Uh, I say now that it is uh, The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams. Perhaps we'll hear it directly we return after these words. And we'll be back to the phones in just an instant. But, Joshua, on this list of things we've got available in the realm of poetry, one I simply didn't want to miss was the one by William Carlos Williams. Say a few words about it. This as well as about this man and the kind of career he had. Well, Dr. Williams was a pediatrician, lived in New Jersey, and he would see patients all day, and he kept a typewriter um, under his desk that he'd swing up on a hinged piece of wood. And in between patients, he would type out poems, and it was a real kind of blending of these two worlds for him. Um, Dr. Williams, a poet, and Dr. Williams, a pediatrician. And uh, this poem is one of his, his most famous, and it's also one of his uh, most simple poems, um, just four short stanzas, um, each one of two lines, three words in the first line, one word in the second with two syllables. Do we hear Williams reading it? I hope so. I think we do. The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. In that, reading, in that reading, we hear him read fairly quickly, but on the page, the words are really spread out, and you really have to concentrate on how this red wheelbarrow appears before you. And it's really a poem of perception, that 
Williams takes his everyday object, something that we would just pass by um, on the farm or that he could see out of his window of his doctor's office and really concentrates our attention on it, just like Frost wants to do in um, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. And we go back to the phones quickly to catch the next caller, 5917200. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, how would you characterize Glenn Gould? Glenn Gould, the pianist. We haven't talked about performing artists. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. He has it's an interesting case because he has his same work, the Goldberg Variations, at the beginning of, of his career, which he records again at the end. And um, the first recording really established him as the great pianist of his age. And then he drastically mm -hmm. reinterpreted it um, toward the end, slowing it down. And I, I'm not sure what is the most, which one is the most influential, perhaps the caller. What thoughts do you have about Gould in this connection, sir? Well, um, I, he said almost exactly what I was going to say. One thing I would add is I think it's universe, almost universally accepted the later recording was better. Well, there, there you go. That may give us a hint to yeah. how we could classify him. Well, he was a rather eccentric sort, wasn't he? He was a concert pianist who, after a while, refused to appear publicly uh, doing concerts. Yeah, at age 30. At age 30, quite early. Yeah, but his uh, first work was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So, also, uh, Charles Darwin, the scientist, he was someone who was a revolutionary who uh, worked quite late into life. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how old he was when he published uh, Origin of Species, but he was probably about 50. Maybe. Yes, and he did his observations and started brooding over this stuff on the voyage of the Beagle when he was in his 20s. But he... Uh, Took a long time before he finished. Yeah, brooding, the book. brooding again is one of these key words, and Darwin's an example of another important characteristic of many experimental artists, which is that they're very reluctant ever to finish their works. Um, Darwin, I'm I'm not an expert on this, but but I believe that he only published because a younger scholar was going to publish essentially the same oh, yes. theory, and Darwin was. Uh, sort of uh, convinced that he should, you know, that he should actually publish at that point. But but his inclination was to keep working. He wasn't there yet. And this is, I mean, that's the refrain of the experimental artist. I'm not finished yet. I haven't reached my goal yet. On to another caller, 5917200. Good evening. Oh, good evening. A great program as always. Uh, gentlemen, I wonder if you have any comments on Rembrandt. He was very successful. His uh, paintings sold when he was young. They were kind of in a traditional Dutch style. But as he got older and became poor and kind of a more brooding existence, his paintings became darker and changed completely. And those are the works that he's known for today. I wonder if you have any comments. It's a very interesting question. A quintessential experimental innovator. I mean, you're absolutely right. The early work was very successful at the time. They were wonderful paintings. Uh, and his work didn't change in dramatic ways as he got older, but it got deeper. It got more uh, introspective. He gained knowledge. I mean, this is, again, he's one of the, the, the wonderful examples of an experimental innovator. I mean, why do they get better as they get older? The answer is they gain a better knowledge of their subject mm. matter, and they gain a better, no a better knowledge of their craft. And you see the self-portraits, and you see him looking at himself and gaining greater and greater insight into his, into his own personality. But at the same time, he's painting more and more expressively, never dramatic leaps, but always incremental changes. Uh, let me read you an email. I would appreciate a comment on Chaplin. I'd argue he got better as time passed, with the exception of his very last film, A Countess from Hong Kong, 1966. His 1952 Limelight was a masterpiece 
of a motion picture, in my opinion. Do you agree? He was 63 years old that year. I would also like to hear your opinion of his Monsieur Veldu, 1947. Uh, I agree with you completely. Chaplin was an, a great experimental director. Um, in contrast, always to, to Buster Keaton. I mean, that was the comparison that was made at the time, and it continues to be made today. Gerald Mast, uh, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, also wrote a wonderful book called The Comic Mind, where he compares Chaplin and Keaton very much in language that, that, that points to the experimental nature of Chaplin, the conceptual nature of Keaton. Chaplin was wonderful at characterization, at incident, but not at plot. He wasn't good at, at making things cohere. Whereas, in contrast, Keaton there's actually something that Mass calls the Keaton imperative, which is that in every one of his films, the character had to do something in the course of the film that was, that was previewed early, but then late he had to do something that was completely out of character. I'm not enough of an expert on the individual works to, to comment on Monsieur Valdu, but, but again, mm. Chaplin is, 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 is a, a wonderful example of, of a great experimental artist. One film that um, this listener does not mention is The Great Dictator. I don't know where that comes in Chaplin's um, chronology. It's it's a late work, and again, it's it's a it's a very powerful one. I mean, it's a it's a very important one. It makes a social statement. It makes a political statement. It's about Hitler. Yeah, and and yeah. again, this is an uh, an artist looking at the world and making a statement about it. Not simply, you know, it's not simply introspection, but it's but it's observation of of the exterior world. What sort of response have you been getting from? Uh, those in the art world with regard to your studies of paintings, and what sort of response uh, are you getting even now with, uh, in uh, with this new book? I gather this one has only been published in the last few weeks. Yeah, the art historians have been extremely hostile to my work. Um, I've been enormously disappointed since I started doing this research about 10 years ago by what I consider their lack of intellectual curiosity. Um, I'm trying to draw systematic generalizations. Art historians don't happen to like systematic, but they won't look past the methods to the conclusions. I mean, I, I think these conclusions are, are very important generalizations that aren't necessarily inconsistent with the work the art historians have done. And, and it's been an enormous disappointment that the art historians haven't been willing to engage this work. I, I haven't learned from them as a result what I should have. And, and I don't believe that they've learned things that they should have learned from me. Somehow what comes to mind is... Um, I don't know what its original so Roman source is, but well-known uh, bit of wisdom, Ars longa vita brevis est. Art is long, life is short. Um, what does that suggest to you? Uh, this work is its own reward. I mean, I, I think this is a wonderful subject. I think it has implications not only for our appreciation or our understanding of art, but for our understanding of creativity in general of our own lives and you know this is this is just it's a wonderful subject I, you know i wish i could say that this is because i was a you know i was this genius who uh, who completely saw this in advance i'm not i'm an experimental person and and it was sort of an accident that i got into this but it's it's fascinating um i hope that other people will be interested and i you know i hope i hope we'll argue about it i mean this is how we learn how might literary types respond to this line of inquiry do you think I think it gives us a better understanding of how artists work. I think we want to, as literary scholars, try to understand the creative process and um, the motivation that goes behind works of art, and that can better give us insights into artists' intentions, which in turn gives us understanding to the meanings of their of their books. Um, art critics should be interested in, or literary critics should be interested in um, careers 
and it has a predictive power as well. We can mm. see um, young, great works of art and uh, predict future successes based on those works of art. Gentlemen, I thank you most sincerely for a very instructive and, to me, a very pleasant conversation. My guests have been Joshua Cochin, editor of the Chicago Review from the University of Chicago, and David Gallinson, professor of economics at the same institution and author of the new book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses.